a lot of people in Australia at the time, the friends that I've met said, why are you going back to South Africa? Are you crazy? And this, I said, there was no, not even the second thought that the fact that it's had to go back to South Africa because history was happening. Couldn't miss, miss out on that. I mean, your first chance to vote. I mean, you know, as an equal citizen, why would you not want to go back? Kia ora. Welcome to Humans at Work. I'm Jules, your host. Thanks for joining me and our latest guest. And thanks for taking some time in your day to indulge your curiosity about other people and their humanness. If your thirst is unquenched after this, check out humansatwork.org. Now let's begin. Today I'm talking to Enver Samuel. Rather than introduce Enver, I'm going to get him to introduce himself tell us where he's sitting right now, what his current job is, and what pushes him to run marathons. Over to you, Enver. Hi, uh, my name is Enver Samuel. I'm actually sitting in my home in Johannesburg, South Africa. The suburb is called Little Falls. And it has that name because not too far from us is a really beautiful 100-meter waterfalls. And everything best about Africa is sort of you know, it reflects everything best of South Africa, beautiful mountain and waterfalls in the background. So yeah, I'm a television producer director. I have been doing this for a long time. I started in around about 1994, producing and directing television content for our national broadcaster, the South African Broadcasting Corporation, SABC, amongst others. And of late, sort of been concentrating on making social impact documentaries for the last seven years. Documentaries that sort of resonate with South Africa's history during apartheid and sort of uh, chronicle and highlight the, the roles of unsung heroes and heroines of the South African struggle against apartheid. I think to keep sane, I run marathons because it allows me the time to forget about some of the hard issues that I deal with in my documentary. So the running gives me a sense of freedom and a sense of escaping from the work I do. That's great. I mean, I admire marathon runners. I couldn't do it myself. I'm not really a runner. I'm more of a, a wanderer. But that sense of having something that allows your mind to drift and takes you away from things. So do you run every day? Do you have times when you just slob out and for months you don't do anything or, you know, are you really disciplined? So I'm sort of a mixed bag because working in television, you know, television is not a nine to five uh, Monday to Friday job. It's dealing with deadlines. And I find that a lot of the times I miss out on the running that most of my friends and colleagues are able to do because they work nine to five jobs and they have the weekends free. Whereas I'm out of the country or in a different province most of the time. So I generally try to squeeze it in wherever I, I can. So my running shoes are always in my suitcase and I could be running at night because there wasn't a chance to do it in the day, all sort of odd hours, but um, I try to squeeze it in, but I'm not fanatical about recording mileage and doing a minimal three or four runs a week. Sometimes I go with a few weeks missed here and there. And you're flying off to Singapore, I understand, to run a marathon. 
Yeah, so I leave tomorrow for Singapore to do the Singapore Marathon on Sunday, and I'm looking forward to it. It's my first international marathon, and I hope it's going to be uh, the first of many. I've got uh, the Sydney Marathon on my radar for next year. I think it's going to be fun. I'm going to make sure that I have something to identify me that I'm from South Africa with regards to our flag, which you can't miss. And I think it's going to be a nice, interesting challenge. Have you ever been to Singapore? Have you been to Singapore before? Yes. Um, in fact, I think this is my fourth visit. The previous ones were on my way back from survivor shoots uh, in Malaysia, Philippines, and Samoa. That was the route back, and I, I got off and went to explore. So you'll know about the humidity. I mean, I've been to Singapore once for a couple of days, and I, you know, I've travelled not as much as you, but I've traveled to various countries around the world and I've felt heat, but I'm not sure I've ever felt humidity quite like Singapore. I, that, that would explain the crazy start. I think the start is at 4.30 a.m. That makes complete sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I wish you good luck. If it's going to be televised or uh, on YouTube or something, I'll have a look and see if I can see you. Dripping with sweat, but running with your flag. Yeah, look out, look out for the flag. <laughs> I will. Is that the one you're taking? No, no, I'm taking a much bigger one. <laughs> I think that's going to be amazing. So are you going on your own or do you travel well, um, with a cohort? So this is like a little bit of a holiday too. So I'm, I'm traveling with my wife, Karen, and my daughter, Kiara. I was going to ask who makes up your family, who's in the house and who makes up the family? Yeah. So we have a lovely daughter, Kiara, who's 21. She, she works with animals in the animal care center, predominantly dogs, but she has, they have donkeys and cats and turtles and yeah, but the main focus is with dogs. And my partner, Karen, uh, we've been together since the uh, mid eighties. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you exact dates. I don't want to get you into trouble. And so if your daughter works with animals, especially dogs, do you have a lot of dogs at home? We have two Labradors, a white and black one. The white one, golden one, is his name is Baloo. And the female, the black one's name is Midnight. Oh, Baloo as in Disney? Is it Disney? Baloo? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. I think I just heard one of them in the background saying hello. Yes. They're barking, yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what life was like for you as a child. What kind of kid were you? So we had an interesting life, I guess interesting to a certain extent, because it came with its challenges of growing up in an apartheid state, which is central thesis was to keep people apart of different races. So my parents, I guess my father didn't agree with the system and we left South Africa at a very young age. I have no recollection of it, but apparently we were, I, I was, I think, probably two or three years old when we left South Africa to go to, to England and sort of live in exile out of the country of your choice where you wanted to really stay. We, were, we ended up in England, then Ghana, and then Zambia for the, the majority of the time. So that was the childhood of traveling and, you know, being away from your homeland. Yeah. So the, the memories are sort of in Zambia, for example, because I have the bigger memories from there because I was older, were pleasant memories. You know, 
of being with children uh, from all over the world because that community we stayed in was sort of community of teachers from all over the world, you know, helping out with the educational system in Zambia. So because my father was in education and I remember it being sort of very pleasant and very outdoors, you know, I guess far away from the maddening situation in South Africa. Yeah, but a, a lot of it is a vague memory. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, so I was in Zambia too, of course, in where our paths um, or our parents' paths crossed. And I remember vague memories of an, a very outdoorsy life that was very chilled. So, but I mean, you know, obviously I was a lot younger. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so what, yeah, I mean, like, what was the decision to move back to South Africa then? So I guess. I guess you'll have to ask my father that primary question, but mm -hmm. I think uh, the indications were that South Africa was on a path of, you know, where it, it wasn't going to look back, but it was look forward in terms of the future was that South Africa now had to change mm -hmm. and change was coming. So rather be there where, you know, things are going to happen for the positive. And as a, as a kid, were you into, you know, technology? Were you interested in movies or did you sort of fall into it? Yes. So in Zambia, no, there was totally no technology. As I could recall, it was, I was the master climb of trees. Uh, sometimes when Karen and Kiara see me climb up a tree in the garden. They say, but where did you learn this? How did you do this? And, and, and it's Zambia because, I mean, that was our entertainment, climbing the highest tree, tallest tree, you know, and that type of thing, very, very outdoor life. So far from technology and what kids do today with all these modern games. So, but I, but I do recall that I, I had a love for movies and going to see movies like every week and watching film and somehow having a connection to them, not on a, just a superficial level of watching and, but somehow, I don't know why till today, but I was able to see more than what I was just seeing, you know, and questioning in my mind how this was done and how that was done, what I could do to um, improve it and, and that type of thing. Seem to have that from a very young age. And what was the first movie or film that you shot? Well, I, let me say, I think the first film that I saw that resonated with me or stuck with me was Jaws. <laughs> and, you know, like that's so vivid in my memory still today. But I think the first means of actually making something came very much later and and I, I went the other route in terms of I started with photography you know long before I got into anything audiovisual and, and but I think photography was the sort of foundation because essentially photography is still images off and if you put them all together then you got film so I think it was a nice medium to practice in terms of composition framing and that type of thing which held you mean good stead later when I decided to jump into the audiovisual medium and I, that has its birth with your mother ironically because your mother was working for the British Council and she got posted to South Africa to Johannesburg and this equipment 
came from the UK um, by the British Council, a camera and sound recording. And it ended up at the place where I was, which was the Sackett Trust, South African Council for, for Higher Education, where your mother had been posted to. And I seemed to take an interest in the equipment that was laying there, I guess, waiting for someone to start fiddling with it. And before I knew it, between your mum and I, we were making audiovisual material uh, going to Soweto, to schools in Soweto and um, things like that and making these sort of educational little videos. And, um, you know, so that's where it all started. You know, I actually, I do remember that. I remember going to SACED and I remember it would have been videotape then, you know, the old sort of VHS or something like that. And I remember my mom saying, you know, Enver's been making a video. Uh, I can actually picture myself in the office hearing that conversation, which wow. is amazing, isn't it? That mm. there is that really strong memory about that. I remember her being sort of tickled about it, you know, like really excited and really proud. But hearing that story about, you know, suddenly there's this equipment there, nobody knows how to use it. And you sort of seeing the opportunity, it was almost like it was meant to be. Yes, because, you know, it is sort of on the ground, hands-on experience. But again, it was in a, in a beautiful time in South Africa, because we were all sort of, you know, uh, trying to do our bit in terms of helping with the situation that existed and with this it was education and um, you know we were welcomed at the schools and we did training for, for, for the schools to learn how to make their own videos so it was a really rewarding time through the British Council I was able to get the opportunity to go to to England and then take take you know what I'd learned but take it into a more formal uh, setting enhance and improve my skills in that medium so I was lucky to to get that opportunity because that then solidified what I was um, interested in what you were meant to do so from the Saka Trust to Great South African Bake Off <laughs> yes well I mean there was there was um there was a period of, you know, I got a scholarship to study film and television in Australia and, you know, left the Sackett Trust in, in 1989 and the scholarship in Australia from 1990 to 1992. And that really was like the cherry on the top of the cake in terms of completing the experience uh, because it was a really, really good course and very, very strong components of, of learning. And when I got back to South Africa, um, around about 93, um, I worked in the industry and, and it was a very upward trajectory. I think based on the fact that I got all these skills in Australia, I didn't sort of hassle for work and hit the ground running, you know, worked for a production company for three years. We were doing cutting edge work because you must remember 1993, 1994 is a historic time in South Africa's history. We're talking about the first democratic elections. So for someone working in this field, it was a dizzy, exciting time. A lot of people in Australia at the time, the friends that I've met said, why are you going back to South Africa? Are you crazy? And this, I said there was no, not even the second thought that the fact that it had to go back to South Africa because history was happening and couldn't miss, miss out on that. I mean, the first chance to vote, I mean, you know, as an equal citizen, why would you not want to go back? 
So after working for this company, production company, I realized quickly that, you know, I'm doing all the work for the company and why, why don't I just set out on my own, take the giant leap to become self-employed, independent producer, director. And from 1996, I've been doing that, you know, never sort of not one year without work or looking for work. And somewhere along this time, when I was an independent producer director, I got into reality TV mm. and I've worked in all the big reality TV formats, like you mentioned, the great South African Bake Off, Survivor South Africa, Master Chef, Come Dine With Me, My Kitchen Rules, which is a sort of strange juxtaposition of hardcore documentary with, with strong social impact focus to really classical reality. But um, reality is all about observation. And you know, I think I, I bring my observational skills that, that I use in documentary to reality. And, but it's an interesting combination and I, and I like working in both spheres. I'm really fascinated about that that link because you know some of the documentaries that you do they're really hard. It takes a lot of it must take a lot of resilience to kind of keep going, and they take a long time. And then on the flip side, uh, TV reality TV it looks sort of easy when you're watching it sitting on your couch, but in order to produce it, it's a lot of work, long hours, lots of work. But the subject matter. I mean, it's either food, it seems, food, or trying to find food if you're on Survivor. So, I, I mean, I can imagine that there's sort of a pressure valve there that sometimes being able to switch between one thing that's quite sort of deep and dark and hard to something else where you're still using all of your skills, but it's a little bit more lighthearted. You know, you might end up eating a bug or whatever, but you're not going to, you know, you're not talking about life and death. Not really. Exactly. So I think that combination may, is also probably another thing that keeps me sane besides the running is the, is the fact that I'm not doing hard core work continuously for a year. I'm, I'm able to do that hard, hardcore work, but then stop doing it for a while and move on to something soft with the reality and lighthearted. So one is not caught up in that dark sort of void, you know, with, with some of the content that I do. So, so I think it's a good combination of keeping one's sanity by, by not also not being on a high horse and saying that I'm, you know, this producer director that does serious stuff and, you know, I'm serious and I must be taken seriously. I'm, you know, some of my colleagues look at me strangely when I tell them I'm, I'm going off to do a bachelorette or a survivor, but, you know, each one to his own. Sometimes, you know, the documentaries that I do, funding is extremely hard to come about. So this lighter hearted work pays a lot of my bills, you know, so I, um, I think I've found a model that works and, and that model works for me and I'm happy with it. And, and I think it keeps me balanced, you know, going over into the really dark side. And because you work for yourself, right, you've got no, you don't need to create any excuses. It's the choices about the business that you take on are yours and yours alone. And I, I mean, I find myself, you know, have, running my own business. One of the benefits is that you make a decision, it's yours it might go well, it might not go well, but you know, there's there's sort of nobody else in that picture. The flip side of that is you're the only one who can make that decision. And if it goes wrong, you're the only one who can kind of get yourself out of that, that hole. Um, but it's one of those things 
so often in life where there there's always benefits and negatives to something and it, and a lot of it depends on how much you invest in it but I mean I would say if you get to go on baking shows and you get to eat the baking then why why would you not do that <laughs> tell me though do you get to eat the baking yes a lot of times on the cooking shows we get to eat uh, because sometimes questions you need to ask as follow-up questions based on on the taste. So there are some positive perks to being on these shows. <laughs> you know, but then you have to do a lot of running after that. I was going to say, that's why you do the marathon running so that when you're eating all the pastries, you can then run it off. I, fi- I do find that fascinating. I guess question I would ask is, what's the work mode like for you in a TV show versus a documentary? Because I would imagine that a TV show is fairly s- sort of scheduled you know, they've got a start, they've got an end, they've got a date that they want to have it ready by. And although you're an, an independent coming in providing a service, you've also got, you know, all of these demands and, and schedules and, and the people who might only be free for a certain amount of time. Whereas when you're making a documentary and it's yours, yes, you've got collaborators, but really it's you driving that schedule. So, so how does that work? You know, is one your preference um, or do you find that you can slip into each one fairly seamlessly? You're exactly right. Doing um, a Survivor, for example, we are over 100 crew. So you, you're like a little army, like a, a little army on the move. You work strictly to deadlines and there's a call sheet. You know, you're starting at this time, everything by the hour, very detailed because they're more than... 100 crew. So what I like about that is how a unit of uh, more than 100 different people from different backgrounds, different experiences come together with one common goal, and that is to make um, make a product that will get broadcast and is, is of the highest standards because, um, you know, uh, um, these type of big format shows, they, they have very specific guidelines on the look and feel. So, so you have to meet that criteria. And, you know, South African crew are known for their reputation of working extremely hard and being very competent, you know. So, so it's nice to be part of a, a, a little army where, you know, there's one common goal and there's long hours, extremely long hours. I mean, some of the survivors I've worked on we're 16 to 18 hours a day, but there's a nice sort of feel when every single person from the lowest common denominator to the top, you know, are all, all seen as one because everyone's job is so critical in um, achieving the end goal. So that's, that's what I like about that. But also the social experiment that reality is. It's quite an interesting, and as content producer for reality, you are the one that's doing the content you know, and that observational, you know, sort of position that one gets in seeing how these contestants, you know, being formulated to be personalities in the show. It's quite an interesting thing to, to not just simply be watching it, but be actually integrally involved in it. You know, I find highly fascinating to see the character development of participants in reality shows. There's a lot of psychology to it. We do have psychologists that we deal with that are on board to ensure that the um, participants are well looked after. So from that point of view, I think if you if you ask me what jobs would you have liked to have done, 
one from from the Zambian Ghana experience would be to have been a game ranger. And I think the other other two would be a psychologist or a lawyer. And, and I think that's what fascinates me about reality is the psychology involved in it. So then on the other hand, with the documentary filmmaking is a very sort of labored process and much less structured process because you, um, you're dealing with, with um, stories that are, you know, um, as I said, the stories are, are not just, just straightforward, simple stories, but they deal a lot with trauma, our dark past in South Africa, the history of apartheid. So in particular, some of the documentaries I've been working on recently, uh, looking at a lot at transgenerational trauma, how the trauma that affected your, your mother or your father who was killed by the security police, for example, and um, how you, 30 years later, as the child, have dealt with that. You know, so these are, I can't go and tell a family that I'm running to the schedule, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that type of thing. So a lot of the times it's a stop-start process. A lot of all people break down and it's not just something that one can put to a schedule. Even in the reality, a lot of the reality is based on, and you see that in reality, the interview with the contestants. And that's, I think for me, is my favorite part. And I think that's why the crossover to documentary is kind of the areas that I like is, and and the fusion of the two is because the interview for me is the best part of my job. You know, when you get to be one-on-one and you get to know that person and sometimes get to let them drop their guard and forget the camera and just have that conversation between the two of you and let that reveal a lot of what that person is trying to express in the most unobtrusive way. And it's a technique that you develop over the years. Do you find that when you're doing that and you're having those conversations and you're, you're hearing from people, because you've got some of that history yourself. So, you know, you left your home, you traveled as a family around and then you, you know, you went back but there, there was that sort of upbringing that always there of something's wrong at home, you know, something's wrong in South Africa, this isn't right. And there's that sort of, that kind of sort of low grind of trauma there. Do you find that when you're talking to people that you are, you're able to kind of work through some of that for yourself as well? Yeah, I guess also, the, the the big thing when you're doing the one-on-one, sitting across the person you're interviewing, and I think it links back to this whole idea of connections. So it's how do you connect with that person? And I think sometimes I'm able to do that, to really connect. And I think it becomes a two-way process. It's not just a one-way process because I'm in the driving seat. And I think a lot of the times I connect with the person on the opposite end of the, the chair in a way that I think also enables me to see some of the things that I haven't worked out. I reflect on that because I have a little bit of that myself. And, you know, the older you get, in theory, the wiser you are. I don't think that's actually true, but I think you get a little bit more reflective and you recognize in yourself things that maybe aren't from the present, but are from something in the past 
And so one of the things that I find is I, you know, I grew up as a traveling kid. My parents were in education and they went to where education was most needed, including, you know, Zambia and Malawi and South Africa. And in South Africa, you know, I was a white blonde kid, you know, so I could do what I wanted pretty much. And I didn't have all of that fear, but I absorbed it because my parents were friends and colleagues with a whole lot of people who were feeling that every day. And so, you know, I have an irrational fear of the police that I know comes from living in South Africa during apartheid and seeing what the police could get away with. And so when I was in my in my 20s and I was living in the UK, I actually did some voluntary work with the police to sort of to try and get through and to, to kind of get through my fears and to understand how does the institution of the police actually work, you know? So I, I worked with cold case detectives to try and help them see things differently. And part of it for me was giving back, but part of it also was... I've got to demystify the police. So I, you know, try to get that connection with individual police officers and understand what were the processes that they used in order to do their job so that I would be able to put myself into a slightly different frame of reference when I think about police as an institution. So I, you know, I'm kind of interested in how you have found an outlet in both worlds, the in the baking surviving world and in the, you know, the serious kind of opening up, bringing to the surface of these things which were really damaging. And if they go on being unspoken about, continue to damage because they're not recognized, not acknowledged. And I'm just interested in you've kind of taken it to this huge scale, whereas, you know, I do a little bit here and there. And obviously our, you know, our experiences of that were very different, but there are so many kind of common areas where people have things that they witnessed or they soaked up or they absorbed when they were younger and through their lives, some people have the luxury or the opportunity to find ways to try and connect the past to the future and, and uh, sort of open those things up and maybe do a little bit of, of healing or a little bit of vocalizing, which demystifies something that's an emotion. Exactly. Uh, for example, but, you know, there's another factor is like this sort of uh, reward and not, not reward in, in um, financial terms, but reward in terms of fulfillment in the in the in the heart in the being of a person's psyche uh, like for example when i finished the documentary murder in paris which is about the assassination of a anc um, chief representative in france in 1988 Darcy september when it came to time to showing the documentary to the family before the broadcast i showed it to her nieces and nephews and the one uh, the niece who are all uh, um, adults today, um, she said, um, thank you for bringing my aunt alive. You know, and that for me is like, you know, one of the other and, and bigger reasons why I do that, do these type of documentaries. I mean, I feel the emotion of you saying that and it's not even my documentary and I wasn't even there. So that must have been an amazing moment um, for you yes. and for her. Mm-hmm. So 
So, how, yes. so you said earlier that it took four years to make that documentary. So how do you motivate yourself to kind of keep going over four years? Because that's quite a long time. Yes, I started work on it in around about late 2017. And, you know, one gets gripped into the story and, you know, the research and and what that uncovers and keeps uncovering one door opens and another leads to another door. It's like, um, and to give them a persona and a personality beyond, um, you know, what existed in the past. So for me, the slow working or approach to this is kind of, it's part of the journey. And for an independent producer director, it's kind of par for the course because because I work on it for a couple of months and then stop and go and do some real paying work. And, but then at the same time, while I'm doing this paid work, I'm also still thinking about the documentary and able to formulate different ideas and different, you know, approaches to how I can better tell the story. It, it did coincide with COVID. So there was, you know, that sort of full stop because we were all in limbo, but that period when we were were really confined to our homes for about six months, I think it was, was the best period for me in terms of I was able to go back to ground zero with the documentary and look at it from a fresh perspective and, and a slower perspective because I'm literally constantly traveling, constantly working. So that period of COVID allowed me to work on the documentary for a period of six months at home, um, you know, entirely and it was the best best sort of worked out in the end that uh, they had that time to focus just on the documentary so again it's coincidence of COVID coming in at that time and it's uh, sort of what's the word fate or serendipity I, I must tell you I was in Switzerland in 2017 and I bumped into Darcy's brother-in-law by complete chance he was at a documentary festival I was attending and he asked me, why didn't you do a documentary on Darcy September? And that was complete fate um, or, you know, either that meeting between the two of us wasn't planned and, and that's how it all started. It was meant to be. Did, as soon as he yeah. said that, did you, did you have that light bulb moment or did it, did it take a bit of convincing? Well, he said that um, and uh, it's in the midst of a festival but I had the conviction to follow up and he gave me the address and contact numbers for Darcy's nephew and niece in Cape Town. And there's something inside of me that said that this story is worth doing, the story is worth following up. And once I'd made that connection with the family in Cape Town, I knew there was no turning back. And that this story had to be told. So can I just delve into your decision-making practice? Are you more of an intuitive decision-maker? Or would you say that you sort of balance, you know, the analytical side with the intuition? Because it sounds a little bit like, in that case, it went into your, you know, it went into your psyche. And once you've made that connection, it, it didn't really matter nothing would have swayed you from that, you know, no analytics, no data, you know, COVID didn't sway you from that, which is that real deep down conviction. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. Once I set myself 
you know, that goal, there's no turning back. But I think inherently in that is, is the fact that there's something going on with inside of you that, that is telling you that this is worth doing. And, you know, something inside of me told me, follow this to the end, follow this. It needs to be done. It needs to be told. That's something that goes on in your psyche. You know, it's, it's something I don't know how to put into words in terms of um, that conviction, you know, following your conviction. And to a certain extent, it's happening again now with the series that I'm working on that's looking at victims uh, from the Truth and Recommission in South Africa. There's just something within me telling me to stick stick to this and uh, make sure that you tell these stories. Do you think I can draw a bit of a link? You know, when you were talking earlier about as a kid, you loved going to movies, but you wanted to see what was behind. So had gone into making that. And to me, it sounds as though that's been a kind of constant through your life that you want to understand what sits behind the person, what sits behind the story to try and make sense of that. And the medium is a documentary or a, a, you know, a production of something, but there's a sort of similarity there around not being satisfied with uh, the, the situation as it is, but wanting to understand, not being satisfied with what the surface is, but wanting to understand somebody's psyche. Yes. And, and I think it goes back to that psychology sort of, element that you know in, in a different world I think that's an area that I would like to focus on but you know in the reality shows for example the, the contestants see us as the people that are, are doing the content as their, their psychologists to a certain extent we are their, their gatekeepers to keeping sane in many 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 circumstances especially the, the survivors and the ones that push you to the limits, you know, we, we're their priests. They confess to us, basically. And um, and we have to keep that balance between between whether, you know, they're going over the edge or, or whatever. Um, it, it's quite tricky, you know. When you delve in, into it further, there are a lot of psychological aspects to this in terms of what contestants expose themselves to, you know, from the beginning where they enter into these things with... Um, a conception that okay I'm on television it's going to be great and and then they realize that suddenly they're exposing themselves to national television and things are not working out or whatever you know so it's not to be taken lightly when you're dealing with people's feelings. And how do you say goodbye you know if you've been sort of on an island somewhere and you've you know you've done these long days and you've got your crew there who you're working with you know your colleagues but you've also got a connection presumably some sort of connection with the contestants and then you know at the end of the day at the end of the shoot you will go to the airport and fly off how does that actually work how do you sort of finish that working under those conditions brings everyone together very closely you know there's a strong bond there's a strong connection not just for the crew but also the contestants and there's a lot of you know friends for life let's let's hook up when we get back and you know social media connections and that type of thing but i think you know in the real world you know you you move on to another project they move on to their lives or to reality the real reality and there's just the rare exception 
where I've seen that, you know, we've taken that relationship further, you know, so it does happen, but it doesn't happen often. It's interesting. I, I mean, I, one of the things that I do in my, um, my other life, my other profession is managing change programs. And it sounds a little bit like Survivor. You know, you've got a, a crew of people, a, a little army, because they're quite often really big and you've got people who know exactly what they need to do. They're sort of, they've got technical expertise or they're there to help manage the program or they're there to do the communications. And you have this really intense period of time where you have a schedule, you know, you've got to do something. It's big, it's under pressure. You know, there's all of that sort of melting pot of things. And then you've got the people who are going through the change and quite often you've got layers there. So you've got executives who are driving the change, but actually they need you to help them build and design what that story looks like and help get them through from starting point to actually change has happened. And then you have the contestants, you know, the people who are actually the organization or the structure or the team that they sit in is being changed. It's being done to them. And so there's layers and layers of psychology in this real sort of intensity you come together, you do a program. In our case, it might be six months, long hours, weekend work. You know, we're not not offshore, but it's very, very intense. And then you get to the end point and everybody sort of says, well, that was really intense and I'd love to work with you again. And, you know, what have you. And then you just slope off uh, and you kind of go away and you think, gosh, that was great. But I actually want a bit of peace I want a bit of time apart. It's, it's yeah. really interesting to me that, you know, your description of going off to an island and, and filming Survivor actually sounds very much like my experience of running a big change program. And you wouldn't think those two things are alike, but there's a lot of similarities. And at the heart of it, it's human connection and people mm -hmm. going through a stressful situation. And how do you maneuver through that situation to get to the end point? while caring for the individuals who are somehow caught up in it. Yes, exactly. I mean, yeah, you hit the head on the nail there, uh, or the nail on the head, with the whole sort of aspect of human beings caught together in one place with one common goal, and you might have friction, you might have, um, you know, obstacles, but in the end you overcome and it's very much like your classical film. And that's, you know, life is about, is encompasses all that. But in the end, in the final act, you overcome and you live happily ever after. So that's like film and a book and life interlinked with these life affirming sort of highlights. And you, you know, like in film, we, call, we talk about the three act structure. I mean, every, everything is not a film and everything is not a book in real life. But in the ideal world or utopian world, at the end of that third act structure, there's resolution and there's um, a happy ending. So for me, this coming together of different people, different crew working for the common goal with contestants that are also from different walks of life, when it all comes together and it gels, it's a beautiful thing. But I mean, life is not just about happy endings, but in that given time and that given moment, when it works, it's a beautiful thing to see. And especially when it, when it works out um, positively. I'm kind of imagining that a marathon is sort of like a three-act 
cycle you know you start off and you're all enthusiastic and you know do you think you're gonna sail through and then the middle bit is the grind where you think oh my goodness I've still got you know two-thirds of this to go my feet hurt you know I don't know what everything hurts and then the final thing is I can see the finishing line I've just got to keep going that's my imagined <laughs> view of what a marathon's like exactly I mean it's the stage where you say why the hell did I do this why am I doing this why am I here and that's when the mind uh, it's mind of a matter and many times in my work situation I cross that bridge of the marathon in terms of the doubt but the resolution to finish always wins so when I'm facing the hardest difficult times with my work I say to myself inside of me that you've done a marathon what is this it's not you know mentally what is this I've, I've you know I've done comrades and comrades is two marathons in one day that's 89 kilometers you know I've done um, an up and a down run because you have to do both one is Durban to Pietermaritzburg and Pietermaritzburg to Durban and for me that was the defining moment in terms of my mental status in terms of you can do this and you can overcome anything because you come to the end of the marathon at 42 kilometers and realize you've got to run another marathon <laughs> and the, at some point with people like myself who are not trained athletes you've got to deal with a lot and it's not how physically fit you are because invariably for me I wouldn't be physically fit but it's how fit how how fit is my mind to tackle it and it becomes a mind issue and how strong your mind can be to get you over that finishing line and a lot of times like I mean survivors we face tropical storms we we don't live like the contestants because we go back to a hotel but the working hours and the the, the hardship physical and then then I, then I go back like the, in the time of self-doubt or, or what am I doing here and they say but dude you ran you ran comrades twice what is this it's nothing it's nothing and I use that to focus and say you can uh, overcome that uh, obstacle I mean I just can't even think about running the comrades but the idea of having something where you've proved yourself to yourself and you have that sense of pride that can just be a defense against any self-doubt. I mean, that's a really valuable thing. It doesn't have to be a marathon. It just has to be something that you know you've tried your best and you've pushed yourself and you've broken through your own barrier and you can go back to that repeatedly when the world, the storms, the bugs, you know, whatever it is, the miles or the kilometers are sort of pushing against you. If you've got that sort of inner kernel of something, it just gives you that extra defense against what the world throws at you. It must be so valuable. I mean, not everyone can run a marathon, but amazing that you have done too. And I'm going to go and Google it and see just how hard it is, but I can imagine it's really, really hard. So I, I wanted to ask then, I would, I would come up with some words to describe you, but people who are close to you, what are three words that they would use to describe you? <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I probably have to ask them, but I, but I guess people, when they I meet them in different productions, will say, what's the word? He listens. So, yeah, so I'm not over the top in terms of making myself 
heard, you know, like I don't need my voice to be the most vocal. I tend to to listen a lot. And um, so, yeah, I'm the quiet one. The quiet one who's sort of very stubborn, very resilient, and who's watching, watching everybody and looking behind the scenes to see what makes them tick. Exactly. Sounds amazing. I love it. <laughs> yes. So uh, that's kind of, that's actually our time over. I mean, I feel like we could carry on talking and I certainly would delve much more into uh, Bake Off because I'm a massive fan. I couldn't do it myself, um, but I think the, uh, the concept of putting yourself out there onto a TV show, whatever it's about, it doesn't matter if it's about sort of you know, something quite lighthearted. It's people putting themselves out there and trying something different. I find that really, really fascinating and a really brave thing for people to do. So I could definitely, I'll definitely want to talk to you more about that. And obviously the documentaries that you make really, really powerful. They grab you by the heart and then they kind of lead your head down a path. And, you know, that's an amazing, magical skill that you've got so I I mean I just want to say thank you very much for giving me your time and kind of walking us through how you do things what your life is like it's been really really fascinating and I do appreciate it no thank you for making the time and for making the connection after how many years thank you so much for listening and thanks as always to the generosity of our delightful guests The stories of how others have faced up to their challenges can help give all of us courage to keep going with our own. For more great episodes, blogs, learning packages, go to thehumansatwork.org website.